0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Predictive algorithms are changing the world. That's the claim of Christopher E. Mason, who's co-authored The Age of Prediction, Algorithms, AI, and the Shifting Shadows of Risk. And he joins me now. So welcome to you.
0: Thanks for having me. A pleasure to be here.
1: And I, I say you co-authored this, and you are a geneticist, and uh, I think your co-author, igor Tczyski is is sort of an expert in finance. So can we just get your bit of it first? what What do you yeah, what is your expertise in in genetics? Uh, so I'm a
0: uh, basically a clinical geneticist as well as a researcher in understanding how genes change in three contexts. So the first is in disease, like in cancer uh, or when things go wrong with an infection at our hospital. Also, we do the secondaries in computational methods, so new algorithms and machine learning and AI tools to uh, learn from data, from imaging data, sequence data, medical data. Uh, and the third part of our, our laboratory is to build synthetic biology, so using computational and prediction tools to design new kinds of cells, new kinds of microbial mixtures, and basically new kinds of biology.
1: So can you put that into context for us in this world of, gen- of uh, genetics that's now out there in the last, what, 20, 30 years? Wh- how do your activities fit in with what everyone else is doing? What is the range of activity?
0: Yeah, a lot of it is with sequencing. We do what, uh, we characterize differences in people who have a mutation or people who have a disease or, again, have an infection or, or if they go to space. We try to use sequencing-based methods or genetic tools let us look at the, the code of life that's mediating a response to a stress, like whether you're uh, you know, getting chemotherapy or if you're in space or even if we're trying to design a new kind of microbial mixture that could survive on the moon.
1: Hang on. If you're going into space, what, 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 where does the role of genetics come into that? Oh, so
0: because when you, when you go into space, actually, you see your immune system changes. Uh, genes change their expression, so what, what gets activated in your cells the genetic tools let us see at a molecular level what's happening inside the body and help us prepare for longer missions like to Mars.
1: I see. So that's one of the insights we've gained what over the last 10, 15 years that it's not just what genes you've got; it's which ones are active.
0: Yeah, that's right. And they're very dynamic and very plastic. And as you can imagine, you know, for example, uh, when you eat uh, spicy food, when you, um, you know, uh, go for a workout, and you think, oh, how do you get bigger muscles? Like a lot of that is uh by the fact that you know a lot of that dynamicism is evidenced by the fact that we have the same dna in all of our cells but obviously we have different kinds of cells and they respond differently if you want to get bigger muscles or if you take a drug you know so the, this sort of plasticity and dynamicism of the genetic code is something that we've finally begun to understand for for disease but also for just our health and wellness
1: right and now tell us about your co-author How, where does finance come into this uh so what's exciting
0: about this igor tuchinski you know, as a friend and colleague We've been chatting for, for years about the overlap between different kinds of algorithms in finance and in genetics, and basically that there is these weird parallels where we could, we realize we're using some of the same tools, the same, literally even the same uh, formula sometime to describe uh, economic change uh, versus what's happening in a microbial genome. So some of the same toolboxes, like the Gini coefficient is one where you look at uh, heterogeneity and differences in income but we use literally the same formula to look at DNA samples that have been sequenced. So we just kept having lunches and dinners and realizing there's a lot of interesting overlaps of the, the computational tools and the formulas and the methods in quantitative finance and quantitative biology. And so we wanted to write a book about
1: that. Yeah, that's interesting. And so, so how, how did you plan that? I mean, what did, you, know, you, you could say these things uh, are in, have things in common, but how did you plan the book then to, to make something of that insight?
0: Well, it started first to, to, to put the book, you know, it was, you know, over some drinks and some dinners and brainstorming. But we kept thinking, you know, we wanted to highlight the fact that it's not just, you know, genetics and medicine and finance and quants where we see this. We realized that AI tools and predictive algorithms have really embedded almost every facet of our lives. This includes, you know, economic measurements. I talked about a little bit on the broad scale, politics how we do elections. We looked at the military and how they're using AI. Uh, looked at, you know, ways you can monitor whole ecosystems, you know, so really almost everything has been impacted by AI. And so we want to kind of call this the age of prediction because it is a new era where predictive algorithms and AI is is really not just a a feature of life, it is a fundamental, you know, I think, uh, you know, pillar of existence at this point.
1: Yeah, so, so we're gonna go through some of those examples. You just ran through yep. uh, some of them then, but ju- just first of all, in, in terms of the power predictive algorithms if you were trying to convince someone of just how astonishing this all is now which which, what example would you come up with i think one
0: of the you know the most approximately one that's most striking is is the ability uh to shift people's perceptions uh on on facebook so kind of really even not quite mind control but you can control a bit of what was called social contagion which i wrote about in the book is that you can move people's systems of of kind of reaction and emotion and belief even uh, that, that's on a, on a subtle level because it affects billions of people because Facebook was so large, for example. Uh, but on a very precise level, also just the precision warfare tools can do you know machine learning for specific faces and lead to a way to really ex, you know target only a single individual uh, or or you know some group of people or family or even ethnicity. We talk about in the book you could target uh, people from a certain background with a lot of these tools. So on, on a very uh, darker side, you could actually have you know more precise warfare uh, and unfortunately killing. But uh, the, the, would we also talk about the shifting shadows of risk in the book. Is that that is more precise in its uh, killing people, but you, know, you could also argue it kills less of the unintended people that you're not killing as many other non-combatants or not killing the wrong person if you're trying to say assassinate someone. So when there's a bit ki- of a pros and cons it. Yeah.
1: When, when you say killing people, you're talking about the use of algorithms in military context. It's
0: very much in, in that context. Yeah
1: okay so so well let's just go through the the facebook one which is which is sort of uh as you say quite um striking and even uh frightening so can you give an example of the most effective use of algorithms to shift can we can you say beliefs uh on yeah yeah, you through social media
0: yeah the one one the the term social contagion is what was put forward by sociologists and this came from the Cambridge Analytica discussion that uh, was very controversial because it was uh, potentially impacting on what people would see and think about where they could go vote or what they should believe about what's true even. And so social media, you know, originally was supposed to, I think, bring us all together because you could have this great open realm where anyone could talk to anybody and we could all learn from each other and share data and methods. But it also was a place where misinformation and disinformation, of course, have propagated. And so the, the Cambridge Analytica it's been discussed multiple times. We talk about it in the book. Is that some people say, "Well, it didn't do that much; it only nudged a few people here and there." Others think it definitely shifted the twenty sixteen election. For example, uh, so, uh, you know that, that it maybe you know was really dramatic. Uh, but we, you know, from people that, have interviewed, that I've interviewed, uh, it definitely, for at least some people, had dramatic impacts on what on their mood and what they would see and then what they would believe. Uh, that has been well documented and published. What, what was called social contagion. And I think it, it in some ways is almost, um, you know, it, it's just irresistible from, from some social scientist perspective, because suddenly you could n- manipulate basically billions of people at a time, which normally you can only have 10 or 20 people for a study. So it, it was um, ostensibly done just for the sake of science and understanding how people, how emotions move through networks. But it had the you know, unintended result of, you know, doing a large scale experiment on people who didn't consent for that experiment. So.
1: That's right. So, I mean, that yeah. was the Cambridge Analytica story, really, wasn't it? They used to get, I think, some messaging down to groups of what a few hundred people, even on Facebook, you know, getting their profile exactly right for the different messages. Uh, that was a while ago now. It's almost you know getting on for 10 years ago. Uh, so when you look at the future of this, where's that gone now? Where's it heading, that use of social media? to change people's views?
0: Yeah, so right now it's come, I mean, uh, Facebook has come back down a little bit, I think, on or at least what they've said that they're doing is they're no longer doing this uh, as much uh, to move people's emotions and change their, you know, essentially their behavior. But but the network is still there and it's not the only one, I think. So while I think it may have been attenuated and reduced a bit on Facebook, uh, there is, of course, Twitter, or, or what's now X, which has its own social network or, or LinkedIn, uh, other other networks look at TikTok, look at uh, look at WhatsApp. Even there's many, many platforms on which there's you know hundreds of millions or billions of people are operating, and so we know that they are consistently monitored, and the algorithms have to be used to just track the data. So it, it is uh, an ongoing, I think, effort of a balance really of ina- enabling freedom on those platforms but controlling misinformation, which is inevitable. At some point, you have to decide well, oh, this this is you know, uh, a Holocaust denier or someone. So we should uh, not let that propagate because it's not true. Uh, But then uh, at some point, you need a group of people saying, we have to decide what else is not going to be expanded or amplified. And that inevitably has to be done on these big platforms
1: no you need big editors that's right yeah. but, but just to know what i was really asking was that cambridge Analytica, i guess had a breakthrough moment you know when they realized the power of this technology and used it for the first time and it made a huge impact uh, i was really asking has the technology moved on since then have they or yeah. is it just little refinements and tweaks really uh, since came-
0: yeah so it's um if anything i think it's gotten much better it's gotten even more precise in terms of the targeting uh, for but but I think it, there's been nothing as dramatic as as what what if we could change the course of an election that has occurred uh, I think uh, since then also people are now more aware of it so I think people are paying attention people have a keen sense of the power of AI so I think it's no longer kind of in the background it it's now everyone's in the front of everyone's brain space to think about this
1: right so let's let's get another area which I guess is related but predictions of voting patterns is that relying on that cambridge analytica technology or is that something else
0: uh, the Cambridge Analytica was one of the first ones, but there's other uh, companies that do this and other other algorithms, some of which are not public, that, that do kind of the same data mining uh, to look for patterns and then try and predict how you can... Yeah, them.
1: so that's the same area, really. Uh, yeah, now, what yeah. about um, vaccines? And you mm-hmm. talk about the creation of vaccines. Uh, how does AI help with that?
0: Uh, so what's extraordinary, and this is one of the opening parts of the book, is... Because you can predict, essentially, instead of looking at one molecule of RNA, uh, you can look at really almost every molecule that's ever been observed and use that to predict what would be the best place to actually modify an RNA for vaccine development or even for a cancer uh, trials, actually also being there. So to take a step back, what we talk about in the book is, you know, what happened when, of course, SARS-CoV-2 came into the world and we realized in early 2020 we were getting into a pandemic. Within a matter of days, actually, the founders of BioNTech uh, used an algorithm to compare the sequence of the newly found virus to every known other virus that they've been looking at and find the best way it would uh, fold, and which sequence they could use and which modifications would be required to build the mrna vaccine and it was done you know in a matter of days and by the previous record holder for a vaccine development was a matter of years or sometimes it would take decades to really do an attenuation of a, of a virus before you could use it as a vaccine. And so, it really, you know, it's leaps and bounds and orders of magnitude faster to see a sequence compared to the totality of all known genetic information about other viruses, then design a vaccine and then deploy it all within, you know, really three, four months.
1: And when you talk about all that data, uh, how is it that mm. drugs mm. companies get access to that data?
0: So, uh, they a lot of it's public. So, one good thing is the majority, I'd say, of sequence data is, you know, from academic sites or companies that. Public, look at a question, publish a paper, uh, get the result, and then they make all the data available. So it's all publicly and freely available.
1: Yeah. Uh, other areas you talked about smart you know, weapons and uh, there's a lot of artificial intelligence in robotic weapons and so on. Uh, what is the latest technology they're doing?
0: Uh, well, in, in with any any context or in particular, I guess
1: anywhere. No, well, everywhere. in the AI, what what, what can. If you were sitting in... I'll ask a question again. Uh, Let's just talk about another area. If you were in the Pentagon and you were looking at Mm -hmm. uh, AI and you had a department there, presumably they do, uh, on what AI can deliver for, let's say, the American military, what areas are the most striking there? Uh,
0: So there it is. uh, The the precision uh, bombs, precision warfare, the facial recognition software, and also a lot of the satellite data. So to a large degree, they're monitoring at high resolution almost every site around the world, frankly. So th- so this is the ability to predict, you know, where tanks are moving, where uh, people are going. So, of course, what happened recently with the Hamas uh, attack in Israel, just because you have lots of cameras and tools and AI platforms, you know, doesn't mean you'll see everything that's coming, because uh, clearly that didn't happen for that attack. But it, it, it is that idea, though, that you could see as, as things are moving in place, you can tell before any attack occurs, you know, that it's about to happen.
1: Yeah, it sounds like one of those uh, cases of life imitating art. I think you've got a lovely cat in the background, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, I just, gonna, just moved her out. Yeah, turned right. yeah, I yeah, just... Okay, <laughs> no problem. Uh, I, I, you know, it's a bit like life imitating art in that you see these movies where you know the all-seeing camera identifies someone by facial recognition, you know, anywhere on Earth, and uh, the, the 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 spy agency knows exactly where everyone is. Uh, and yeah, you're saying basically that is happening.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is. Unquestionably, uh, it's it here. I'd say see, it seems like something out of a, a movie or science fiction, but it, it's already happening.
1: Yeah, and I, I know in in Afghanistan, the Americans were taking. I think it was it was. I think they were taking DNA of yeah. all the Afghan prisoners they got, weren't they? So that they had a, an amazing data bank of that.
0: Yeah, and the Uyghur Muslims and some of the Chinese in the northern part of China. We're being also samples being taken and collected by the Chinese government. So this idea of sort of tracking, we have a whole section on forensics in the book, you know, a whole idea of tracking people anywhere they leave DNA or when they go through a checkpoint and collect a sample. uh, You know, it sounds like something out of a dystopian movie or novel, but it's already happening, right? There are ongoing collections without really a lot of consent or control of the data that that are happening as we speak.
1: Well, you've used the word dystopian. So when, when you, you know, saw the whole range of activity that's going on, and you've just described three or four, you know, pretty remarkable applications of this. What scared you most, actually? Um, yeah, I think,
0: you know, because I'm an optimist by general. So there's some things that could feel dystopian. And we try to write in the book all the cases where even if something is worse, on one hand, it might be better another. But I think the thing that, you know, the thing that scares me the most, I think, is potentially... Uh, you know, actually, the the disinformation is probably the thing that scares me most, which well, you might be surprised by because you could think you could have technologies that make like a superbug. You can make, you know, all this technology to make a vaccine you could use to make a super virus and have a bioterrorism event. Or you could design an AI system that would be self-aware and say, I'm going to kill all of humanity. And someone could make that as a terrorist or just as a crazy person. And so those are two things people often point to as bioterrorism and AI are that itself are existential threats that could lead to a dystopian world. But I actually think that. The disinformation and misinformation is so uh, uh, subversive and 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 sticky that um, that it's actually having even more nefarious and hard to get rid of, and could lead to a dystopia where no one believes anything anymore that they read because they've been lied to too many times. And, and you know, if, if that does happen, why would you believe anything someone sends you because you've been lied to? So you know, other th- other things like uh, aggressive AI, I think we could have benevolent AI, or you know, bioterrorism, we could you know have bio uh, surveillance and bio resistance that we can uh, defend against it but i think misinformation gets stuck in people's heads and it's hard to uh, dislodge
1: well it's very interesting you say it's sticky i mean i totally agree with you that it's so profound isn't it that if you if, mm. if people just believe basically almost what they want to believe and they yeah. and they and they consider it to be true and unshakably true i mean it, it does undermine virtually everything about western liberalism and our way of life doesn't it
0: yeah, yeah, well, cuz an informed populace is what you need to help guide policy, voting, uh just rationality. Uh and, and if they're, you know, it, it's like if like we we laugh and say, "Oh, flat earthers are ridiculous," right? But what if suddenly 20% of people thought they were flat earths and they and they would say, well, "We don't need a space program or satellites aren't real," or you know, like there there could be devastating consequences to people who believe things that are, you know, falsifiable and and just not 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 sane. Yeah.
1: Now, it's interesting you use the word sticky because I, mean, I, I did quite a lot of work on uh, radicalization of violent jihadis. And, yeah. You know, just because I was a sort of correspondent in all that at the time. And, and what's, what I discovered going to those deradicalization camps was that you could persuade someone to be, a, you know, a suicide bomber even quite easily. But you could also persuade them to stop quite easily. It was yeah. you know, no, very, no. Su- it was a very surprising thing that you know but these people it's were so, so quite,
0: flippable right yeah, yeah 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 it was
1: quite biddable, yeah. you know and, and and they could be talked into something or talked out of it but you're saying that's not really the case with this disinformation it's sticky tell us a bit about that
0: yeah so it is i mean so i i, I agree there is there is some hope that if, if someone can quickly be can convinced to be a suicide government they could very quickly uh, go back right so that that is a, a hopeful view but but i think the, the challenge is also in the context, like if everyone around them is also uh, thinking that this is a good idea, it's hard to dislodge that. You know, I think that that stickiness component is is not just within a person, it's within a community, within a culture. And so I, I think, you know, it, it does mean it, it's not permanent, though, right? And just the same way, uh, you know, slavery used to be viewed as just normal. Uh, of course, it's abhorrent and now we no one would think otherwise. But um, yeah, I think there's evidence that people, even if something is pervasive and sticky and immoral, it, it might take time, but it is possible, I think, to remove it, even on a p- large-scale sense.
1: But maybe what you've just sense. said is quite an important insight, that it, it, it's not quite as scary as you think, in that you'll you get sort of four billion people each believing their own thing, Be- <laughs> yeah, yeah. because you get groups of people and peer pressure masses.
0: I mean, because there's really no um, you know, the guiding force between all the cultures of the nations, right? So the United Nations is kind of doing this. But it is, um, uh, you know, trying to coordinate between many nations. But it is still really a nation by nation and, and culture by culture um, dynamic, or at least it has been. But if you think about what we have today, though, no one thinks twice about doing a, a Zoom or a WhatsApp or calling someone across the world. I can pick up the call, someone that's in China, uh, literally across the world, and I don't even think twice about it. And so I think, and this uh, this global communication system hasn't really existed until the past, you know, twenty twenty five years. Uh, you know, before then, there were there were wires, there was mail, but everything was pretty slow and disconnected, disjointed, and certainly not as fast. So, I think this this new era, the era of prediction, this era of rapid communication, it, it will maybe get, make it possible so we could start to move faster towards these more benevolent states because people have more access to information. Uh, it just ha- it just has to be clean though from the disinformation. That's my, that's what's in the
1: Right. Well, if you, if you were uh, thinking, you know, if you were George Orwell writing 1984 today and, and, and you were thinking, you know, not so much about TVs in every room and, and the sort of kind of propaganda he had in mind, but by, by this post-truth world and the ability to use social media to make people believe things, uh, I, I guess you'd have the hero who resisted it. Hmm. And, and that raises the question of how much of these hmm. AI prediction techniques are, are gameable by hmm. by humans and that they can predict themselves what's gonna they're gonna do and, and sort of frustrate the AI it, how, how real is all that
0: uh, I think uh, there it's very real because AI is like any technology right it can be a tool or it can be a weapon depending on how you hold it and if people are building you know counter counteracting or, or countermeasures to some of the AI tools out there uh, they will you know they'll they'll just as many of them being built or even like what are called the white hat hackers versus black hat hackers you know i think writ large for most technologies like this like you could just argue like hacking and network security is itself almost a tool and are there more black hat hackers or uh, malevolent hackers or are there more white hat hackers people that are trying to um you know be benevolent and there's actually more of the good kind so i think if you look in other places where technology exists or, or for example Uh, synthesis of dangerous RNA viruses, which, you know, could potentially lead to like a spillover event, but uh, could help us better understand a dangerous pathogen. So like, uh, basically, I think there's more uh, of the good than the bad. So I think with this with AI technology, I anticipate we'll see the same kind of distribution.
1: There's another whole area, which is interesting, which is insurance and and how, uh, you know, possible it's going to be now to predict Uh, uh, illnesses and and all that, Uh, because that has quite yeah, that could be, you know, you're saying that the post-truth stuff really could affect the world, vaccines really could affect the world, but so could this predictability of a human life, isn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah, well, and, and uh, are you closer to, you know, are you high risk, low risk, where are you at in your risk profile? And and, and we talk a little bit in the book, because some of this is, we, we again, a lot of people don't think twice about, it. like when, for example, we got new car insurance, uh, part of the deal was you get a little better rate if you let them put a little tracker in your car They can tell how fast you're going, where you drive, what you do, your behavior, which is on the face of it seems okay. But my wife was like, we're not putting that in their car. I'd rather pay a higher rate and have people not know uh, what we're doing because she was just creeped out by it. So I think, you know, we quantify everything from car insurance to health insurance, to your genetic risk, to when you might likely die. And and it does have consequences for your family too, because you share, of course, like 50% of your DNA with your siblings. Uh, or with your parents, or 25% with your grandparents, or 12.5% with your cousins. So if you post on like Facebook or or on on X and say, oh, I got just diagnosed with breast cancer and I have a BRCA1 mutation, that means an insurance company could look at that and say, oh, well, since we know you carry a lot of the same genetic code as that person, we're going to raise your rates, and that would be perfectly legal to do today. Uh, Not necessarily the best model, but certainly perfectly legal to do so
1: so do you think insurance in long term is 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 something that just won't work because yeah you, you, you know, this whole idea of pooling risk won't really work when you actually know what the risk is for an individual
0: no uh, it it'll, it it'll, it would work if the system is Balkanized uh, not that well i'd say but but what you could imagine if you would have a centralized healthcare system where everyone has healthcare then it would be great because you could better track models of risk and then intervene earlier but if if it's a it's a for-profit healthcare system and everyone's not sharing information then you will it will not work it'll be it'll be awful um or it'll be working in a pretty nefarious and i think kind of uh, uh, brutal way
1: yeah it's interesting you say that because you know the the socialized health system which we've got in the uk should deliver that kind of benefit and indeed lots of preventative medicine because there's yeah, obviously the, the whole system's got an interest in preventing expensive serious illness later exactly, but, for, exactly. but for some reason it doesn't work and and the you know i think just the financial pressures are too great to yeah, they're always dealing with today's crisis rather than preventing tomorrow's.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's just what they've gotten used to, basically. I'd say, yeah. yeah.
1: And, and budgets, but yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah. so so.
0: But, but uh, they could change. They could change if they, if they really wanted to. I think it's still a chance to change and change get better.
1: Yeah. So, uh, well, uh, as you look ahead to all this, what what what's going to change in the next ten years? Yeah, uh, f- you know, quickest. What 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 can we expect? So
0: I think uh, for. You know, actually, it also, I had a book called "The Next 500 Years," which I wrote about a longer-term plan. But I think in the next 10 years, we'll we'll see that this uh, the the current pace of uh, AI deployment will it will accelerate. We'll see more of it in more places. I think a lot of it will though, lead to more convenience. Uh, we'll see you could see better healthcare. You could see you know better, just even a, a faster pickup time if you order a Lyft or an Uber car because it's building a lot of tools in there. You'll see uh, better, in, in theory, better returns for finance because we're getting better at squeezing more out of every dollar to have it be reinvested and make, you know, make more money for the market, which is good for people's you know, retirement funds. So there's some good things I think that will hopefully get better. Uh, and, and I think though the, the, that we'll know if certainly 10 years from now, if they really, if this spooky risk of a, 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 you know, a self-aware AI that could be a threat to all of humanity, if it really becomes uh, if it, if it really is true. And I don't think it will be, I, th- I think, will be tempered by the benefits of time, seeing that, oh, well, actually, the world didn't end, because everyone who said the world's going to end ever has been wrong uh, consistently. And I think uh, so that'll be good to see, as my guess, that the world will not have ended in 10 years. Uh, But also some of the AI tools, for example, for image recognition will improve diagnostics at hospitals. There'll be entirely new means and speed with which we find and cure disease uh, we'll use AI algorithms to look at image scans of the of the moon when uh, things land on the moon. A spacecraft will scan the ground automatically to find the best place to land on the moon and, and eventually Mars. So we'll see AI in all these really wonderful uh, places as well.
1: Yeah. Uh, but I think as your co-author is particularly, you know, really bothered about the implications for free will. And yeah. Yeah, maybe that's more than 10 years, but we'll ha- just, just take us through the future of that as you see it
0: uh so i'd say so we have we talked a bit about this because it's an old question you know do we have free will Does there, do we have determinism do we have soft determinism what is the nature you know effectively of of, of consciousness and, and do we have can we make our own choices and and if, if the algorithms get really good it will be on some level harder to say oh i i made that decision because if the if an algorithm could predict everything you were going to be doing uh and almost perfectly well then uh, maybe they could do the decision better than you can, or, or, or that you could predict perfectly what you would have done and, and you, you could be modeled so perfectly. So I, I still think philosophically, we may not actually have free will in terms of, I, uh, the understanding of consciousness and neuroscience and, and just even how it's viewed in philosophy. So that is the common thread now is that we may not have free will, but then often the final con- concluding statement is, but it may not matter because it still feels like you do. And we still have to act as if we do, because if, if you don't have free will, some of you think, well, then I'm not accountable for anything uh, because I didn't do it. But that's not, of course, how we act. You you are a collection of everything that's happened to you over time that you have done, uh that your environment, but all that still comprises you. And even if it could be perfectly modeled by some algorithm, uh like like to the T, it could it get, it get you spot on, then it would still feel as if you had free will, and you should still act as if you do because you're still responsible
1: for your actions. I still get jailed if you do a crime, Rob. Yeah, that's right. It. That's <laughs> right. You can't because you
0: can't say, "Oh, the, the algorithm told me to do it." or right? you know, I, I'm not responsible because, uh, because of course, society would collapse if we said no one's responsible for anything. Uh, we, we would not be able to actually even have a functioning uh,
1: society. This is quite—I mean, it, probably a bit of an unfair question—but I'm just wondering whether you've seen a work of literature or a, a, a film or some creative uh, work which, to to your mind, has best expressed these issues you're dealing with.
0: Well, actually, one of my favorites is The Matrix, uh, the movie from uh, 1999, I believe it is, with Keanu Reeves and and uh, Carrie Man Moss. And so, it was a really great in that in that case, it was a dystopian movie, but it was a lot about free will, about prediction, about your mind being perfectly modeled uh, and then put into a, a, basically a battery cage. So it, it, I really enjoy the movie because it expresses ideas around uh, self, free will, Buddhism, purpose, and also, um, you know, what is, what is real.
1: Christopher Mason, fascinating. Thank you very much indeed.
0: Thank you. A pleasure to be here. And thanks for joining me with my cat.